This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. Good morning, guys. Anyone giving any speeches this week which have crashed the economy? No? Good. Well, uh, something which might keep us on the inflation train is the latest uh, production cut from the OPEC plus cartel, which controls a huge amount of the world's oil, including Russia. Uh, Ed, along with the price concerns for consumers, a bit of a geopolitical backlash as well. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So uh, it's, it's it's clearly led to, uh, should we say, harsh words uh, between uh, the US, which has been trying to control oil prices. Obviously, uh, you know, they've got kind of political questions around the Biden administration. Going into the November midterm elections, that's obviously a crucial test of the of the Democrat uh, ruling uh, party. So the um, so the US has been releasing uh, oil from the SPR. Obviously, the SPR is is supposed to be just for emergencies, and there's a kind of a question there, I suppose, about whether just, is 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 higher prices emergency enough? Obviously, the 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 Biden administration feels that it is, so they are they've been releasing oil. So the last thing that uh, that Mr. Biden would like uh, c- the news coming out of Vienna uh, this week was uh, was was OPEC Plus's decision to cut production by two million barrels per day, hmm. which is uh, which is a fairly uh, substantial production cut. Uh, most of that uh, that 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 sort of reduction is going to be shared by uh, by Saudi and and, and Russia, the, the 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 two big dogs in that uh, in that organization. They both agreed to cut about half a million barrels per day of production, and that should officially keep them at about the same level. Whether the actual numbers balance is maybe a question that we can come back to, but just to sort of stick to that geopolitics idea, obviously uh, this you know kind of this, this this triggered immediate alarm bells in 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 Washington. Biden visiting Saudi Arabia not too long ago, about a month or so ago, obviously in a, in a move that was that was contested at, the, at that time. People saying, "Why are you going to see, uh, you know, the, the the Saudis? Are they our friends? You know, there there was obviously that kind of question around around the uh, the, the the murder of uh, of uh, the, the the journalist in in Turkey some time ago. So there was real pressure on on, on Biden kind of going on that trip, and a lot of the, the the reasoning for it was to say, look, we need to." You know, secure uh, the the global economy. We need to secure the U.S. economy, and and we can do that by being better friends with the Saudis, by bringing on extra production, by securing that that kind of crucial uh, supply. That OPEC has now taken the decision to cut. Has been obvious. Yeah, it feels like a sort of a slap in the face for the for, for the U.S. and and the U.S. now talking about. Ways to try and perhaps you know kind of reduce uh, OPEC's uh, control of the global energy market. Obviously, the US having tried in, in a number of times to try and uh, try and take that on, not with uh, not not successfully. But uh, obviously, a real testament to to, to that kind of uh, to, that, to that strong feeling that that this is a this is a betrayal. But I mean, from the Saudi's perspective, um, you know, I was I was at the conference uh, this week in in London where uh, the head of Aramco, I mean, NASA was 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 speaking about the lack of spare capacity and expressing concerns about the ways in which oil production was running, sort of, you know, with 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 little uh, chance for, for 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 additional production, and really talking about the ways in which he felt and that the Saudis felt that the price does not reflect the tightness of the market. 
Hmm. The price is being, what, sort of mid-80s, I, I think, at the moment. They're about, yeah. And there is maybe a feeling that, that, that the Saudis would like a price of about 100. It's, it's, it's kind of the idea. So a clear desire for higher prices from the Saudis. Obviously, that is contrary to what the US and frankly, the world is looking at. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. and, 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 and here, you know, just looking at the, the sort of the local picture, right? Here in the UK, inflation running at sort of what, sort of 9, 10%. Higher, higher oil prices, which obviously turns into higher prices at the pump, is clearly not what we want. And I guess there is a feeling that, you know, maybe while the Saudis are, are clearly kind of protecting their revenues and, and, and that sort of uh, that side of things, there is maybe a feeling that they are going to help push the world into, into a bit of a deeper recession than we might have been looking at. Obviously, a risk, you know, that we repeat some of those mistakes from early 2020, when uh, you know, sort of Saudi and, and, and Russia kind of competed in a particularly unfortunate way to, um, you know, make things worse for the oil market and 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 really contribute to to to, to that kind of uh, pickle that we found ourselves in with negative prices in April 2020. There's a feeling that you know maybe that that this time. This talk, these these reductions are really adding up to um, give us a, a bit more of a push down, uh, and which will obviously have a, a problem for us all. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, maybe to, to talk about that uh, consumer side a bit, a bit more. Um, well, I've, re I've read a, a few pieces of analysis. Um, Kathleen Brooks from a Minerva Analysis uh, describing this as worst case scenario uh, in terms of what people were looking for, uh, particularly as you look at like increased prices across the economy changes the narrative in terms of peak inflation. We might not be there yet. And yeah, uh, the, the RAC motoring group here in the UK uh, saying this will you know, obviously inevitably lead to higher oil prices. But the question is, to what extent will retailers uh, choose to pass these increased costs on at four courts? We've obviously had, um, as you alluded to, some pretty hefty petrol prices in recent times. And it does indeed sound like uh, the, the Saudis anyway are quite keen to see that go up and up, which will have... Uh, even even further uh, problems for the UK economy and, of course, globally. Um, so I guess in terms of Biden's uh, levers to pull here, he he has, as you say, had, you know, he has released more oil into the market in, in some months ago uh, or weeks ago now. I can't recall, but he, he also has recently released from the Strategic Reserve. Might he do that again? What do we think? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think it feels like pretty much a certainty that more oil is going to be coming out of the SPR. Uh, and, you know, they, they do have, uh, you know, sort of hundreds of millions of barrels in there. So there is, you know, obviously there is there is that sort of room to run in terms of the US. I mean, that feels uh, like, um, I mean, I don't, it, it feels like a bit of an inelegant solution, mm. really, doesn't it? I mean, I think essentially... The, the 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 sort of levers that you know you can pull are you know the ones the ones that we will be talking about for in terms of gas right I mean I think that you know here in 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 Europe you know we've been looking at the problems with the gas market and I think you know obviously oil is kind of going in the same direction so it's a question about efficiency it's about you know doing more with less and it's also about question about sort of alternative supplies so that's both you know the US finding new ways to do to, to to move ahead with federal leasing which we've seen some progress with although obviously the uh the republicans say that Biden never obviously no, never never does enough but i think there has been signs that that they are open to 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 drilling more um but i think you know in the longer term there is also that push to to move away from from oil in terms of driving cars isn't there and i, mean, I think mm. you know that 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 statement from the uh from the white house uh, that that came out in response to the opec cuts 
did say, look, we're going to do more domestically, but we're also this is also part of the reason why the Inflation Reduction Act is so important in driving that energy transition. And I think, you know, there is clearly this 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 feeling, isn't there, that you know, while oil is in clearly in no way on its deathbed, uh, there is a question about where demand is going, and you know, do we want to? To what extent do we want to to kind of continue running uh, running our our, our cars on uh, on dinosaur juice? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that uh, that that twenty thirty uh, deadline to, to to end the sale of uh, pure diesel and, and and petrol cars in the UK is going to you know kind of you know obviously one one part of many but that's that's a step in the right direction um so i think you know there is there is kind of some signs of change coming i just want to just want to note briefly that that you know just just to come back to that point that i alluded to earlier about that question about numbers and baselines there is a question there about um you know so the the, the opec has said that they're going to cut 2 million barrels per day which sounds like a lot but uh, the difference between what OPEC has said they're producing in terms of their quotas and what they're actually producing has become more and more of an issue. According to OPEC's official numbers, after the cut, Nigeria, for instance, will be producing 1.7 million barrels per day. And I think the idea is that Angola will be reduced to something like 1.3. Nigeria has not produced, has been producing about a million barrels per day all this year. In August, it fell to 900,000 barrels per day. Angola's at about 1 million barrels per day. So those two countries between them, they're about a million barrels per day short of what the uh, what the what the OPEC uh, kind of quota have been actually talking about. So I think there's a real question there about the sort of the, the the big numbers that OPEC's been coming out with and and what actually may change. Russia also has, has is facing some challenges around its production. So really there's kind of a question around obviously they are going to cut production and they're talking a tough game and that's obviously going to have an impact on oil prices. But I think there is also kind of questions there about how that bookkeeping works and you know what they can actually cut and what they can't cut, which I think is a lot more of a complicated question. Yeah. Obviously, it's a bigger question than we have time for, but I just think it's really worth noting that there is this kind of question between, you know, these kind of mysterious sort of magical math. Yeah, we'll see how that all adds up. Um, and also, I suppose, worth noting, of course, that this will boost the, well, potentially boost the coffers of the Russian state if the, the prices go up as as they as they hope. But uh, more geopolitical stuff than we have time to get into at the moment. But we'll park OPEC there. Uh, and speaking of higher oil prices, some uh, interesting rhetoric from the CEO of Shell this week. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Well, uh, one bit of discourse which someone may or may not regret this week uh, is that of the outgoing Shell CEO, Ben Van Buren, who was uh, speaking at an industry event in London. Ed, I think you were actually at this event, maybe at a different session. I was indeed. So his comments were picked up by uh, Bloomberg, among many others, on discussion of 
supporting the poorest people in society against rising fuel costs. Just to take a bit of what he said here, one way or another, there needs to be government intervention protecting the poorest. That probably may mean that governments need to tax people in this room to pay for it. This is an oil and gas event. Um, and uh, again, you know, from OPEC, we've seen rising inflation costs. We may see it further. So to what extent uh, governments around the world will fancy, or indeed the UK government fancies, another windfall tax we'll see. But uh, many analysts, or at least one analyst we've ran, uh, saying this has flung open a door on windfall tax, which the UK government has been trying to close, uh, which we'll get into. Uh, and, you know... It does seem that this will reignite the debate here a little bit. Uh, you know, round, round the room, guys, before we dig into that, um, you know, Ben Van Buren's outgoing. Maybe he's just chucking a grenade into the trench on his way out. <laughs> Who knows? Um, you know, obviously, a lot of publications and analysts have taken this as a direct discussion of the windfall tax. It's talking about taxing oil and gas companies to help against fuel costs. I think it's pretty difficult to argue against that interpretation. Uh, but what do you guys both think? Uh, reignite the debate or will will it pass over? Will it pass us by? I don't think so. I mean, so, uh, well, as you say, Alistair, I was in the room. And so obviously, uh, you know, possibly I should have I should have written that, uh, that 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 headline grabbing story as well. You know, you're on your own regrets. Exactly. I, you know, if if uh, if only uh, Energy Voice had sent the sort of 15 or so uh, journalists <laughs> that uh, Bloomberg sends to every conference. But uh, but so, so to me, I, it, it just seemed a case of it. He didn't. He didn't say windfall tax. I mean, there was a question about windfall taxes. He didn't kind of. It didn't feel like he explicitly endorsed the idea of a windfall tax. To me, it felt like he was saying, you know, people who can afford to pay should pay more. Right. I think he was saying, you know, there was a kind of a question there around the way in which, uh, in which you know, taxes should be shared out. I just thought he was sort of addressing the people in the room as the sort of the entitled bourgeoisie um, who could afford to pay more taxes and, and and therefore do more to help people who are facing, you know, some some tough choices in terms of uh, heating or eating this winter. So I, I yeah, I, I, you know, maybe that was my journalistic uh, instinct lacking. But but to me, it felt uh, like he wasn't explicitly saying a windfall tax. Hamish, what do you reckon? If that is what he was saying, it's a pretty nothing statement. Because <laughs> Oil companies do pay a lot of tax. The rich do pay more tax, um, and, and rightly so. I mean, it's it's hardly a, a big mic drop moment to go, I think people with more should pay more. So I mean, it would seem like it was a an odd way of expressing a rather benign point. Um, and I would sidle on the side of perhaps he is in favour of perhaps a bit more taxation than he's been letting on, certainly for the last year. Maybe there are a few other CEOs who, when they, uh, when they look back in years to come and write their memoirs, might say, actually... I think we got this wrong. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think personally, it's pretty difficult to differentiate between the entitled bourgeoisie and the oil and gas <laughs> executives at the top of the top of the board. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would probably fall into the category of it's a fair game to interpret that as as windfall tax. Certainly, the the world's media has. Um, and yeah, as you say, uh, Hamish, uh, uh, other CEOs of of late have have actually came out backing. Further taxes on oil and gas, uh, Anders Opidal of Equinor being one, uh, I think, last month in an interview who uh, echoed a similar kind of sentiment. So, um, yeah, Susanna Streeter of the financial services firm Hargreaves Lansdowne is one of the analysts that have been uh, taking a look at this. Uh, as I say, she's, she reckons this has flung open the door on this debate, which, uh, you know, as I say, the UK government, Offshore Energies UK, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, have tried to kind of close the door on. 
Um, and this, yeah, it, it, is it a reversal? It does sound maybe it was a little bit more nuanced than things have been put across, but I think ultimately the underlying message is the same, and this will reignite the debate on on the windfall tax. Um, when even Shell is saying, yes, tax us, how do you argue against that? Uh, you know, Greenpeace saying this cash has been up for grabs for a year now, um, so why don't we get on with it? I guess the question then becomes, Will Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng change position on this? I think, honestly, from their perspective, uh, bigger problems considering the price cap measures which have been announced um, and other (laughs) problems are collapsing the economy, frankly. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a a separate issue. It kind of plays into this theme, this idea which I've seen floating around that actually not all rich people have been after these tax cuts that the government's announced. And in in a similar vein, as I say, it's a separate issue, but in a similar vein, it would appear that Shell, maybe some others in the oil and gas industry actually are open to further taxes. I suppose the problem then becomes, well, you've kind of been saying via your trade bodies for months now that you don't want this and you adamantly don't want this and this will threaten investment. So how does that add up? Um, You know, we went, we did go to OEUK for a comment on this and and unsurprisingly, they... uh, deferred to Shell as it was their CEO commenting. Um, a bit tricky. Maybe one of the other points that I would flag here uh, that that Hargreaves Lansdowne kind of raised is that it seems to be that Shell have kind of, or the way they've interpreted it anyway, is Shell has kind of, you know, read the room a little bit on this. And it's kind of... Uh, Taking a second look at their ESG strategy, particularly the social side of that, um, and you know, not just in terms of you know the environmental credentials, but social reputation as well. Perhaps there's a room for a bit of maneuver. Um, but again, you know, equ- equally, um, you know, Ben Van Buren is out at the end of the year. Uh, we'll have a new CEO, and he'll have to tackle all of these problems ultimately. Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, to what to what extent we can we can get into this further, other than you know we'll have to wait and see. Shell's Q3 results are out uh, later this month. There will be analyst calls. There will be questions about this, and I guess it's going to be well. You said it. Do you regret it, or will you put your money where your mouth is? I mean, I, I, I think yeah, but also I think it's it's worth uh, just bringing up. You know, there, obviously there were protesters outside uh, the the conference, mm. uh, and it was you know as you, uh, it was the benign, it was now the benignly called uh, Energy Intelligence Forum. Up until uh, this was, but a couple of years ago, it was called the Oil and Money. Uh, oil conference. and money and it's just the sort of thing you just can't get it i mean you know i was speaking to a guy there and he was like oh why did they change it and i was like i don't th- i don't think you can get away with calling uh, a conference oil and money anymore i think i think the world has changed um you can't really turn up at the oil and money conference and uh yeah so yes i think you're right there is there is a a bit more uh social pressure these days isn't there it's definitely an image issue there. I don't know what. Yeah, we we had. Uh, is it still the Scottish Oil Club? I can't recall. Um, but yeah, everything's turned into energy forum, this or that or the other. But yeah, that is you know, push comes to shove. That is the the subject matter at the end of the day. It's oil and money. And um, yeah, if you want to, if you want to, kind of. <laughs> Move things along in terms of your uh, social um, image. Uh, perhaps it's the better move to to rebrand. But indeed, you know, we'll have to see if they can, uh, you know, back it all up when when the time comes. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where, whether the UK government will uh, be keen to revisit this particular 
issue or not, it does feel like other issues have perhaps uh, overtaken it uh, on the economic front. Um, but we shall see. We shall see what uh, what happens there in, in the halls of Westminster. I'm sure there'll be more news coming out of that very, very soon. Um, but we will we will leave that there. Uh, next, we'll switch gears from inflation and windfall tax to talk about diversity and inclusion eff- efforts in the offshore energy industry. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, this month, we've dedicated our monthly supplements to equality, diversity and inclusion, uh, predominantly in the UK offshore energy sector, but we do look across the globe as well. And the need to address uh, historically poor performance on a series of areas, including uh, but not limited to race and gender. So we've done a series of stories on that. Please do go check it out online, tackling some of those areas, including a great piece from our, our new start, uh, Ryan Duff, on uh, new mums working offshore and pressures there. And Hamish, you spoke to Offshore Energies UK's new boss on this very topic of DNI. I did, yeah. Finlay Anderson, um, who's a who's a top uh, top dog at Baker Hughes um, and has been leading their um, DNI efforts within the company for about five years or so. Um, he's also been on OEUK's DNI task group since it was formed in um, in 2019. So I had a chat with him. Went up to Baker Hughes' office in West Hill. I had a really good. It was about 40 minutes to be honest. And we probably could have could have kept going on for a long old while. He's very very knowledgeable on the subject and seen him speak at a few industry events before. It was good to have a bit of a one-on-one time with him, and he came up with some really interesting comments, some really kind of thoughtful, um, eloquent comments as well on 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 diversity and inclusion. I mean, the kind of two ones that really stood out was one: he's uh, made no illusion that he thinks that diversity and inclusion has to start with leadership. He doesn't think it's something that can be. Um, allocated to different areas it's just something that needs to come from the top um, and that's the the attitude he tries to take within his own company and um, indeed within the role at, as the uh, head of the the task group something that he took up earlier this year in around April time and the second point was uh, the, this was the the title from the article and it was perhaps a, a vaguely sensitive subjects um, but you usually expect the head of DNI task groups to be led by underrepresented groups those that have perhaps had had experience um, know what barriers need to be overcome or removed or whatever and he is um, as he puts it a white middle class man um, but he was very kind of clear that he thought that in order for diversity and inclusion within the sector to progress it needed people like him to step up it needed um, it can't just be a a conversation within underrepresented groups um, because then little will be achieved and that it needs, um, like he said, white middle-class men to, to kind of stand up and show that they're passionate about it for, for other people within the sector to see someone like them 
being passionate about the subject and think, oh, this is interesting. Perhaps I should get involved in this too. Um, so I thought that was a very kind of pertinent point. He also, there was the um, OUK, uh, what was it? The Building the Baseline Survey, I think it was called, that came out. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah, there was some quite, was something of a wake-up call, I think you could, you could describe it as um, there were kind of a few pretty worrying trends within it, um, especially around um, black and disabled people who felt their voices weren't being heard and they kind of posted the lowest metrics of this um, kind of measuring system that OEUK came up with. And he kind of clearly set out that, look, that that is a problem. This is something that in my first few months we're looking to address. Um, and the other thing was kind of the headline finding from the report was that um, gender parity in the North Sea might be kind of 30 years away. It, it seems like the UK will reach net zero before it reaches um, gender parity in the North Sea. So kind of put that to him. Do you think it will have got any better in the last year? There's kind of the, all the move to flexible working and things like that that you would imagine perhaps should help um, parity. But he was kind of had said the opposite in a way in that in trends that he's noticed with people that he's speaking to, it seems that the kind of natural attrition, as he called it, from companies, it seems to be more women leaving than men. Um, so he thinks that that kind of predicted date could have could be pushed even further back, although he kind of caveated that with the, the fact that he thinks it will be a blip more than a long-term a long-term issue. So they OEUK are in the process of putting together an updated version of this report. I think it will come out in the next month or so. So we'll see what we'll see what the findings are there. But yeah, no, it was a really interesting chat and um really good to catch up with Finley and to to kind of hear what the what the task force was on. He played some really nice tributes to to his predecessor Craig Shanahay up from Woods and to Deirdre Mickey as well who called for the task group to be set up and is obviously on her way out of OEUK shortly. And I just wanted to ask as well, somebody questioned me yesterday, do we release uh, this supplement to coincide with Black History Month? And I didn't I didn't know that. Is that just fortuitous or is that great planning on your behalf, Alistair? I would love to say that was how it was planned, but it wasn't. That was kind of what I said as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was just a gap in the calendar. Yeah, yeah, that's the sad truth of it. Um, yeah, no, it's a really interesting piece. Uh, Hamish and it did seem like he was quite candid about uh, the 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 landscape, if you like. Um, yeah, and we need to be clear. You know, these these this issue of DNI, it, it, gender comes up because it's probably the widest kind of obviously demographic issue. Um, it, clearly, it's not the only issue. Uh, race uh, and and you know other things like LGBT inclusion are, are very important as well. You mentioned that that building a baseline report. Just if anyone is interested, we did a podcast with OEUK on the launch of that uh, some time ago. I think it might have been August time last year. So if you go back in the archive, you'll find it. But we spoke about a, a wide variety of issues, you know, in, including the fact that offshore oil and gas uh, in in the North Sea, you know, that it seems that things are getting better. But it's still a very male-dominated uh, sector, and we do talk with a few people quite candidly, and we did some an article on that off the back of it. And the number of women that have talked about things like sexual harassment or just being provoked or catcalled offshore—it's still clearly a prevalent issue that people need to, you know, companies just need to be a lot more harsh with in terms of preventing it and shutting it down. Other, otherwise, from that. You know, uh, more than a year since this DNI results uh, launch uh, that you mentioned, Hamish. You know, I, I spoke to to Ollie Flyen of of Afby UK. The uh, it's a group that helps black and minority ethnic uh, people, particularly in kind of engineering, to to get into the industry. Uh, and he talks about yeah, at the moment, you know, 
the North Sea oil and gas industry, Scotland is not a particularly diverse place, but the, the North Sea oil and gas industry does have diversity within it. And if you look at the boardrooms and if you look indeed at, the, I guess, the drilling floors uh, and, and elsewhere, the argument is that it doesn't necessarily reflect that portion of the community. There isn't the representation and that has an impact on things like career pathways and, and people knowing how to get to from A to B, mentoring and frankly, you know, um, Finlay Anderson's predecessor, Craig Shanahy, I spoke to him on that podcast as well, but things like bias, unconscious and otherwise, that's still an issue that needs to to deal with in the industry. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we spoke we spoke about to, to a few people, we spoke about uh, Southeast Asia for the supplement as well and, and how the West and the East are doing things differently. Um, Ed, I know that you you focused in on kind of uh, COP27, quite rightly, for, for this one that's that's coming up. But I mean, what's what's the view of these kind of issues, uh, you know, f- for the kind of parts of the world that you kind of uh, focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 clearly a challenge, right? And I think, you know, that kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, there are different uh, pressures. But I mean, I remember speaking to the CEO of Kenta a, a while ago about how you try and kind of create a culture working in different places that shares values, right? And he brought up the uh, the instance of uh, you know sort of trying to create uh, an LGBTQ uh, sort of friendly kind of culture in parts of the world where clearly that's a problem, right? You know, parts of the Middle East, homosexuality, for instance, is illegal, and the the the, the difficulties therein. So I think you know, like obviously, you know, there are different parts of the world, different challenges. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think you know, we, it's something that the industry's got to face up to, and particularly with the with the interplay between, um, I suppose, sort of local cultures and kind of global pressures, right? I mean, I think you know, obviously. You've mentioned uh, ESG already, uh, you know, today. But I think, you know, in terms of these global companies having to kind of, you know, achieve these ESG metrics, which are becoming increasingly important and becoming increasingly, frankly, sort of a financial, uh, financially important. Mm. Um, And and, and sort of how to to balance that and achieve something sort of equitable, equitable is going to be an, an increasing pressure and particularly with, you know, such divergent views. So... Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're we're, we're all sort of looking at, at, at quite how to navigate it. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, I guess I'll maybe just say, you know, we've had some really nice feedback on on this supplement. We're not, a, we're not an outpouring of letters or anything. We've had some nice feedback on the supplement, nice feedback on the individual articles as well. Um, you know, equally though, um, I got a horrible email from somebody yesterday who said they were a geologist in the 60s or something or 70s expressing, you know, their displeasure at some of the views in there from the groups that we've spoken to and uh, just really just disgusting individual, um, last of the dinosaurs to die out (laughs) evidently, but, you know, kind of illustrating why it's important to continue to carry news like this uh, and to continue to, you know, cover this as a as an item you know and we will continue to do so um and as i say we've had some really nice feedback on the vast majority of it so uh, i'm very pleased to see that and it's a good effort from the team so there we are patting the back over and with that that is it for this latest episode of energy voice out loud thank you to ed and to hamish for joining me i've been alistair thomas and thanks for listening out loud is the podcast from energy voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
and please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.